So tell me about some of the things you were told during your 12 years that you found out were lies mm -hmm. about the about the formation, for example, the beginning of the church. Well, when I baptized in, uh, in 2000, <clears throat> there was a lot of things that were not told to us. Uh, for example, we weren't told about Second Coming Christ, like I just mentioned. We were baptized and told to keep the Passover only until several months later, then we were told about Second Coming Christ. Um, the other things that we were never told that um, An Sang Hong um, had children, he had four children. Um, An Sang Hong, uh, he was supposedly uh, baptized in 1948, which we have confirmed that he was somewhat confirmed. Um, we don't have records from the Seventh-day Adventist, but we were told that after 1948, when he was baptized, he began preaching the New Covenant. Well, come to find out now, he was in the Seventh-day Adventist church for 14 years. So that's a... That's a big, you know, that was one of the big things for a lot of us members that came out because they said 37 years according to the prophecy. So they were linking prophecies with An Sang Hong's history, but it's not true history. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the 37 years, he didn't establish the church until his own church until 1964, which is 14 to 16 years after um, he was baptized. Mm -hmm. So it didn't match up with the 37 years. Um, also, the other thing, he was married and the woman who they call the mother, Zhang Jilja, she also has children. Um, they were both divorced from their previous wife and husband and mm -hmm. I supposedly, we're not sure if they married each other, but the church has a wedding picture of them in some wedding clothing. So either they, it was uh, bigotry, I think you call it, where you- Bigamy. Bigamy or, or they're were got divorced which uh, seems to be against the bible especially for god to do if they're god you know to to get a divorce and remarry someone else mm -hmm. they break you down they disorient you through controlling people's behavior information thoughts and emotions i refer to it as the bite model which is by the way on my freedomofmind.com website or in my books uh, they deliberately break people down, disorient them, spoon feed them incrementally what the teachings are, shape their behavior, control sleep, control diet, start to isolate people from family and friends who may be questioning, install phobias in people's minds to make them afraid that if they question the group or even have a negative thought, terrible things are going to happen to them. So tonight we're doing Staff of Moses chapter three. Um, for those of you who, who might just, if this might be the first uh, of this series that you're tuning into, uh, a quick introduction of the Staff of Moses, which is this book here. Uh, this series that we're doing right now is, is we're, we're going chapter by chapter through this specific book, um, giving a response to what is in here. This, this book is, the World Mission Society Church of Gods, uh, sort of like their their defense book, um, their countermeasures book. It's a book where they will go chapter by chapter and, and respond to certain uh, arguments that might be brought against their beliefs and their their teachings and their doctrines. And so, if uh, for instance, if a Christian has uh, a specific way that they commonly respond to the WMSCOG doctrine, then they 
will cover that in this book and respond to the Christian response, um, seemingly refuting um, opposing views. And so this series, uh, we are, we're going chapter by chapter and just hopefully helping you guys to see that as convincing and as uh, uh, powerful as the WMSCOG uh, arguments may seem on the surface, um, they're not when you really dig into them. Um, and so, so yeah, this is chapter three uh, that we're doing here. This is a very important uh, chapter. Um, it's, a, it's a chapter that contains some um, arguments from, from this group that they will very commonly use and that, that honestly are a little bit tricky to deal with. This, is, this was a little bit more of a tricky uh, chapter to figure out exactly uh, what's the best way to handle it, what's the best way to respond. And so we're going to, um, to do that in this video. Amen. So Kelsey and Steve, hello. Hello. Hey guys, good to see you. I got the hair down again. I just wanted to follow heavenly custom, you know, yep. or create a custom. <laughs> Well done. Kelsey, Kelsey you, want to say, you want to say what a heavenly custom is for us? <laughs> uh, well, I think we all know what the WMSCOG believes in regards to About long, long hair. hair but <laughs> no, just what they heavenly like custom it, is right? in general. What is, what's heavenly custom in general? Oh, heavenly custom in general? Uh, men have short hair, women have long hair. But it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot bigger than that, right? Like, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses have what they call being theocratic. Like, you know, you got to mm -hmm. walk theocratic or your hair's got to be theocratic. You know, heavenly custom is much bigger than that. It says how you talk and how you certain, oh, yes. like, lingo and expressions when you're in Zion. And it's yep. like, oh, that's not, you're not acting with heavenly custom right now, right? <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any kooky examples, your, your favorite heavenly customs? Oh, some way out favorite? there ones. Are they my favorite? No, but some kooky um, ones. You know, those are so hard to to point out um, unless somebody says something that reminds me. Because I mean, like I think the the biggest one is you know that we aren't allowed to whistle um, because really? we're told that if we whistle, it draws uh, evil spirits towards us. Um, I've since learned that that's actually a Korean superstition. <laughs> not wow. actually introduced by An Sang Hong, but that's what that's what we were told is that An Sang Hong taught that we weren't supposed to whistle because we'd be drawing uh, evil spirits to us. So that's it's kind that of gone away now, right? Uh, uh, how about, no, how about not, not when I was how, a member. No. How about not saying you're welcome? Oh yeah, you can't say you're welcome. You have to say God bless you. You can't say thank you. You have to say God bless you. Or thank um, mother and fa father and mother because you're or, taking yeah, the yeah, glory or for yourself. Father and mother, yes, yes. Yeah, that's Korean custom. Really? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, crazy stuff. Uh, well, we uh, were. I mean, we were I told that there's a bunch stuff. of it. There's, there's so much. There's so many. You could almost things, do a whole show just on Korean custom. Yeah, I mean, you, well, we were told that the Koreans have the heavenly culture because they're with mother every day. So we were told to learn the heavenly culture from the Koreans. Huh. So, mm -hmm. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, Steve, yep. you and your long hair, your hippie long hair, are, <laughs> you are not in line tonight, Steve. I'm but for some I'm reason, me, me and Kelsey are wearing, we ended up wearing orange orange shirts. So, not Steve, you missed the memo. You missed the memo, <laughs> I guess. But we're talking about the, the name of the chapter we're doing tonight is False Insistence, Chapter 3, The Bride of the Lamb in Revelation 19 indicates the church 
and in brackets it says the Saints. So it has to do with uh, the white linen of the Saints, and I thought I'd wear right. white for that. Yeah, you are more appropriately dressed for right. this chapter. So we missed the well, memo. At least yeah. you didn't wear scarlet like the the great harlot in Revelation 18. That would have been a problem. Right. That would have been right. a problem. <clears throat> okay, well let's just uh, let's just jump into this. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, a little bit just kind of of the intro of chapter three, just so we kind of know what what they're kind of saying, uh, what their arguments are so that, um, you know, what we're, we're trying to respond to. So, uh, as Steve said, chapter three is titled The Bride of the Lamb in Revelation 19.7 indicates the church or saints. So they say that some people insist, some people being Christians, that uh, the bride of Christ, uh, the bride of, of Jesus in, in Revelation uh, 19 indicates or, or is about the church, that the bride is the church and not heavenly mother. And then they go on and say, let's disprove it. So again, that's, that's the, whole, the whole point of this book is what they'll do is they'll, they'll kind of give a little summary of a, a common argument. Um, the ones we've covered so far are Christian arguments. And then they'll kind of go on and say, now let's, let's disprove that. And then the whole rest of the chapter is devoted to them seemingly disproving um, those points. And so, so Revelation 19.7, let me just read that real quick. Here's what it says. Uh, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So in verse 8, referring to this, this bride, um, in Revelation, it says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Okay, so this is let me just read this last little section of this chapter and then we're gonna we're gonna give a response so kind of their their summary of those verses i just read they say in the heavenly wedding banquet in revelation 19 there are the bridegroom the bride and the people who are invited to the wedding supper uh, so those who are invited to the wedding banquet cannot be the bridegroom or the bride because the bridegroom and the bride are not invited to their wedding, but the ones who invite guests. So the bride and the guests are completely different. If the bride were the saints, and that's kind of what the Christians will commonly say, that the bride is the saints. And so they're saying, if that is true, then who are the invited? So in, so in Revelation 19, you have you, what they're trying to argue is that you have these different entities. You have the, uh, you have the bride groom, you have the bride, and then you have those who are invited. Um, now there's problems even with that, I think when it's worded that way, that we might get into, but but let's just jump into first, um, let's explain our, our kind of idea, uh, what we think Revelation 19 is talking about, specifically mm -hmm. Who are the guests? Because that's really what this chapter three comes down to is, is they focus in on the fact that Revelation 19 uh, specifies th the bride and guests. And so they say, since there's both a, uh, a bride of Christ and guests invited to that wedding, these must not, these must be different people. And yeah, so they'll if, say if the guests, 
if the guests are the uh, are the are church, the church, right? Then then, then, who, the then they can't, can't be, be the bride. The church too. They can't exactly. be the bride, right? And they would say basically like at you know at in the end here, you know, the wicked are going to be destroyed. So that only kind of leaves two categories. It leaves basically the church. Well, the, there's one category is basically because the wicked are destroyed. So now you're going to have a church. And, you know, and a bride and the guest, and if the church is the, the guest, then they can't be the bride, therefore it's got to be Heavenly Mother. Right, right. So, okay, so that might be confusing. That was a little bit, when I first heard them use that argument uh, in a, in a conver- sit-down conversation I was having with them, it, it, it did take me back a little bit, and it wasn't, like, super convincing. It, was, it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was some kind of knockdown argument that they think and knew there's a there you know it's got you can see the sleight of hand sort of uh, trickery that they're using even unknowingly a lot of the members aren't knowing they're doing that but they they think this is a solid argument but but it was something that um, you know you do have to kind of go away and, and and dig in and try to figure out who are the guests you know and and how does this this go together and so. Let's just talk a little bit about what kind of our conclusion is about who the guests are and how do we reconcile this idea of there being both the bride, who, who I think is very clearly the church, the bride is very clearly the saints, and we can go back to Ong Song Hong again, all the quotes we've given in the last several videos where uh, Ong Song Hong very clearly says that the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb is the saints. Um, I have yet to find a member who, who will give a valid response to that or explanation for why Aung San Hong taught that. Um, but what, uh, maybe Steve, first let's jump into, obviously we, we wanna explain what Revelation 19 is talking about. Who are the guests, who are the bride? Yeah. But all this, uh, explaining this really, I think we need to set up the the literature, the, the style of literature that Revelation is, which is apocalyptic literature. Um, so maybe talk about what that is and why that is important and relevant to to this this thing we're doing of trying to un- unpack and, and uncover who the guests are. Yeah, there you go. So I'll just start off by saying, you know, the idea of the, the you know, marriage supper can be understood in a couple of different ways inside of Christianity even. Um, it can be understood as a, a future literal heavenly dinner event or it can be seen as a eschatological metaphor for the eternal messianic joining with the Savior and his people. So when I say the word eschatological, it's a big, you know, 50 cent word, but all it means end is times. like kind of, a, yeah, end time. The word eschatos in Greek means last. So it's also as a substantive, you could say last things, eschatos, last things. So it's a doctrine of the last things. So we, as you know, uh, eschatological is an adjectival form. Uh, eschatology is the nominal noun form. So when you say, you know, the eschatological, it's an eschatological metaphor, it's like a prophetic end time metaphor. It's, it's nothing to be, you know, it's just a common word that people in theology use. So, um, you know, I, 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 have, I saw one quote of a writer who said, the climax of redemptive history is also an anticipation of the eschatological consummation. So the climax of redemptive history that we're in right now, salvation history, is also anticipation of a coming eschatological consummation. And in the Old Testament, you know, the people of God there were often seen as God's wife. This is a, a kind of metaphor used in the Old Testament. Um, and other Jewish literature also, you know, Jewish, you know, in the Old Testament and in other Jewish literature, they would talk about a future eschatological banquet. You know, this is, goes back to Isaiah chapter 
uh, 25, uh, chapter, verses 6 to 8. It's kind of rooted in that a lot. Um, in the Synoptic Gospels, that'd be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's several references made to this eschatological feast. Uh, you have it Matthew 8.11, Mark 14.25, Luke 13.29, and 14.15. Um, and Revela- when, by the time we get to Revelation, it pictures this messianic co- consummation in terms of like a wedding feast. Um, it's, the, it's our ultimate and final eschatological union with our Savior in that point. So it's metaphorical language. It's not to be, I don't think it's to be taken literally as we're, you know, sitting mm-hmm. at a giant table with billions of seats or millions of seats throughout, you know, all church history. It'd be a pretty long table. But um, Robert Gundry is a really great writer. He says, a wedding marks the coming together of a man and woman for lifelong cohabitation. The Lamb's wedding marks the coming together of Jesus, the Lamb, and the church's wife for eternal cohabitation. So Revelation, you know, it's, as Jordan said, it's, it's apocalyptic literature. <clears throat> and apocalyptic literature, you know, it kind of roots the word apocalypse, right? You know, um, it's a very specific genre that appears in certain books of the Bible, like Revelation, Daniel, and portions of Ezekiel. Um, and the big point here is when you read apocalyptic literature, you're supposed to read it differently than non-apocalyptic literature. You approach it with a certain mindset right. because you're understanding your this. It's a, what we call a genre. You know, you don't read a romantic novel the same way you'll read like the news or apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature literature is very symbolically rich. It has to do with visions, and you know, it's not always clear. There's metaphors. Um, it uses it, it uses really exaggerated language, right? Like like metaphorical, symbolic, exaggeration type of language that isn't to be taken literal. Right. So you, you approach Revelation in a very different way. I don't care if you're a WMCUG or a regular Christian. There's no way you should be looking at Revelation or parts of Daniel the same way. You're going to read the Gospel of John or Romans. Right. It's, it's just very different, you know. If, if you don't know that, I mean, you haven't looked at the Bible a whole lot. Um, well, I could say right off the bat, there's no contradiction here in Revelation 19:9. You know, for us as Christians, you know, where we we can say that the church is the bride and at the same time the wedding guest. There's no contradiction in light of this apocalyptic literature. Um, right. You know, you cannot always make certain distinctions when we try to split things and take categories and subcategories is completely literally. And this is what they're basically doing here. They're, they want to prove so bad that mother is in the Bible. I mean, there's no verses, you know, we've already gone over a bunch of this stuff in Revelation. Uh, by the time we get to chapter five, we're really going to go heavy into how there's only one God. But they teach us two gods and they can't just find a verse in the Bible saying there's two gods because there's a gazillion verses that says there's only one God. So they have to try to be sneaky and say, aha, got you here because you know there's you know the church can't be the bride and the guest therefore mother god right you know and, and that's not what works so you know we don't have to you know we one one example of not making these splits interpretive splits and distinctions is with the concept of the bride itself in revelation because this term appears in 19 verse 7 as the church and and it's defined by john as the church and then in 21 Two and nine, it's it's a heavenly city, and God says, "Let me show you 
who this right. is. He's actually doing the work for us. We don't even have to guess. He's telling it for us. <clears throat> and then at 2217, it's back to the to the people of God again. So, you know, in apocalyptic literature, they can go back and forth with different meanings where you don't have to force it very hard like that. So an example of, of why, you know, if, if somebody's hearing us say, you know, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, which means it's highly symbolic, highly exaggerated language. You can't take it. You can't take everything as literally as you would if you're reading through, uh, as you said, like the Gospels. If somebody hears that and says, you know, you're just you're just, uh, you know, misunderstanding the Bible or, or that's a misuse of the Bible or, you know, if you're like somebody saying that you need to be hardcore literal, I would just point you to, uh, you know, in this very passage, Revelation 19, an example of why we, we have to understand how highly symbolic this uh, book is. Um, because we're here saying that what Steve just said is that this wedding, I don't think it should necessarily be taken as a literal wedding event. That This isn't a literal wedding banquet, but it's symbolizing something deeper. It's symbolizing something about the saints like and the churches. Yes, this yeah. ultimate relationship with Christ. And so if somebody says, well, no, I don't agree with that. I think you should take it literally. I would say, okay, if this is a literal wedding, do you believe that that at this wedding banquet, at this feast, there's going to be like this giant lamb, like a literal lamb sitting at the wedding feast table with, with a sword coming out of his mouth, yeah. like sitting on the back of a white horse, because all that, all that is, all that sort of descriptions of Christ are also in Revelation. Um, in this very passage, it, it defines Jesus, it describes Jesus, it, 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 it titles him as a, the lamb. And so, so all that to say, I think it's very, it should be obvious. We should assume coming into Revelation that much of what we're going to read is going to be highly symbolic, highly exaggerated and metaphorical language that if you begin to take it in literal ways, you're going to run into trouble. And I, I think it's because of the genre of Revelation that it is highly symbolic that cult groups that uh, many, many, you know, false groups will just love Revelation because it's so easy to take this book that is highly symbolic and make it say whatever the heck you want because it there's is so another, metaphorical. Th there's another Korean group called Shinshanji, and they basically say Book of Revelation is everything for today, and they just go crazy by doing that. So one one of the things I, I made some notes here, you know, as I was reviewing all this stuff, and I said the marriage supper of the Lamb is a metaphor. So mm -hmm. it's definitely metaphorical. It's not like a future event where the, the table or anything, but it's, a, it's basically a metaphor describing the final fulfillment of our salvation and redemption, where the people of God are resurrected and get our immortal bodies and begin our journey into eternal life in the fellowship and communion with our Redeemer. So that's the kind of picture. It's that ultimate union, yep. that that time of you know future you know living where God has come down to us, like it says in Revelation. Yep. Um, and metaphors are like parables or analogies and where you can't right. push the language of that metaphor too hard because they'll break down yes. just like analogies break down and right. church of god you know we've talked That's about exactly how what they're doing That's yeah exactly and, and what they're do, doing and they do that like the idea in revelation one with the idea of the analogies of you know let us make man our image and they try to extract that and they push the analogy too far to say it's mother in god's image so analogies parables they do that and you know, it's a very bad idea to build doctrines on metaphors, parables, or analogies, especially when it's something as crucial and important as existence of a second deity. 
you know, while there's while there's differences in Christianity, like on this, hey, we're totally unified in the fact that there's no way this talks about a second God. Right. Nonsense. Right. Christians exactly. are monotheists. Jews are yep. monotheists. So all that to say, I'm going to I'm going to read this quote from a commentator uh, who wrote about Revelation 19. And he, he gives, I think, what is a, a really good, sum, it, this is a short paragraph summarization, and, and this kind of explains, I think, what we're trying to say about the identity of the guests and the bride. So this is, again, a quote from Robert H. Mounts, and he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, that believers are portrayed as the bride of Christ, as well as the wedding guests is typical of apocalyptic language. The style in which Revelation is written enjoys all the freedom of poetic expression. It appeals to the fluidity of imagination, not to the inflexibility of logic. The wedding supper is not a specific feast that takes place before the millennium. It depicts rather the eternal relationship between Christ and those who have accepted his love. The wedding supper lasts forever. So Robert H. Mounts, what he's saying is what we've kind of come to a consensus to as we've been studying this chapter the past couple weeks, that when you have these two seemingly separate entities, the bride of Christ and the guests to that wedding, these both are different symbols that both represent the church. They rep- the, the aspect of the guest represents the, the, a certain aspect of the church and is a, a symbolic way of understanding a certain aspect of who the saints are and their relationship to Christ and, and the, the, the call even of the gospel to invite those who, who are invited. And then the, the aspect of the church being the bride, that's just simply another symbol to, to describe uh, who the church is. So it's this is really no different than the fact that there's some places where in the New Testament, the church is very obviously referred to as sheep. We are the sheep of God. Um, but then other places we are referred to as the the bride. You know, there's very clear place, places where the church is very clearly referred to as the bride. This is no different. It's no different that that in Revelation, again, this apocalyptic literature, that it would refer to the church as both guests and bride. So Kelsey, Kelsey had something good on that. On that. Kelsey had a yep. good yeah. thing on how words are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, jump into that. Well, I mean, the WMS, they're the, the first to say, you know, one word can have multiple meanings depending on the context. And, you know, like it, it also extends to, you know, a person can be represented. It, within, even within WMS COG theology, um, you know, a person can be represented by multiple different people. Like Jesus was represented according to them by King David, and Jesus was also represented by Melchizedek, right? So just mm-hmm. because Jesus was represented by like King David doesn't mean he can't also be represented by Melchizedek. Exactly. You know, in the same exactly. way like the, the church, right? The church can be represented, as you mentioned, like by the sheep, right? It can be represented by you know, the bride, and it can be represented by the guests to this wedding supper, you know, and, and when you see the content, when you see Revelation 19, when you see like from verse 6, it says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peal of thunder shouting. So in from like verse 6 through 
8, it's this great multitude that's shouting. And the great multitude is saying that the bride has made herself ready, right? So the great multitude is is talking about this bride. And within this context, we can clearly see this bride representing the church. But when you see verse 9, it says, Then the angel said to me. So it's not the same group of people who are talking. So in right. verse 9, it says, The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Two different groups of people talking. So in one case, the bride represents the church. And then in verse 9, the wedding guests also represent the church. Yep. And and also, exactly. and also one other thing that we talked about before, too, is in verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, his bride has made herself ready. Oh, verse 8, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. So mm-hmm. this bride is wearing the fine linen, bright and clean, right? But in, Which in was the same granted, chapter... Yeah, that word it, is so important, granted. Like, it, it's yeah. like she was, this bride was given permission. Right. Why would Mother God need permission? She would be granting. Amen. She right. wouldn't she be would granted. Be yes. right? Totally. But when you see verse, same chapter 19, but verse 14, so just a few verses later, it says, The armies of heaven were following him, him being Christ, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white fine and clean. Linen. So hmm. we can see that within this context, the bride is clearly talking about the saints. Right. It's using and, and those the, same words, fine linen, this fine linen right. that this, the armies of heaven are wearing fine linen. No, but they want, this is obviously the saints, you know, the people of God uh, are the armies of heaven here, um, white and pure. And, and the same language used in verse eight about this this bride who was given fine linen, bright and pure to wear. And so this is definitely the bride. This this is just another example of what we're talking about right in front of our face. Of the, in this, not only is the church here being referred to as bride and guests, but they're also being referred to as the armies. Like not only mm-hmm. is this king have the the church as his bride but the church is also his guest and the church is also his army and so this is very obviously like just the the nature of apocalyptic literature taking these liberties to to use all this variety of symbolism in, in the same setting jordan let me also go back to ephesians 5 so this is where they try to say things can have two meanings but in ephesians 5 the passage where they admit that the bride can be the church Tell me, this is not reminiscent of Revelation 19.8. It says, um, Husband loves your wife, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, clean, um, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might oh, present her great... to himself, the church, yeah. in all their glory, having no spot or wrinkle yep. or Brilliant. anything, that she would be yeah. holy and blameless. So again, that language, That's the a Pauline, point. Steve. Right. So the Pauline language there in the context of the bride being the church, complete cross-reference, Revelation 19.8, Ephesians yeah. 5.28. It's, it's so clear. Yeah. And I, and I want to point out, too, the, the WM, even like the pastors within the WMS, they're not theologians. Like members of the WMS, you start out learning their doctrine. You don't learn right. about how other Christians interpret the Bible. Um, unless you're learning for like a countermeasure or you're preaching on the street and somebody says something, right? And then you're taught yep. how to, to, to speak against it. But so even the pastors, they're not taught about 
other churches. You're not when you're no. in the church. They actually tell you like because actually when people get baptized, they're really excited to start studying the Bible, and sometimes they want to study about you know other like um, denominations of Christianity, and they tell us not to. They say well, if you know the truth, why do you need to know the falsehood? No. And so, and, and like they're they they they're not they're not brought up to speed on apocalyptic literature. They're not, no. and and the the you know the different techniques that are found within apocalyptic writings. Right. They're well, not a, they're not schooled on that. A bigger picture is, I mean, people in culture in general have no clue on the difference between what a Christian theologian is really like. I mean, we have Christian theologians with P, multiple PhDs. They know thirty languages. Honestly, and they'll study this stuff for decades and they'll break down, you know, verses and, and the words in Greek and they'll compare it with the way it's used in other parts in Greek and other contemporary literature or throughout the centuries that cognates the root words in the Greek and the Hebrew and the evolutions of the words. The depth that we go to as Christians is a completely different world than what you get in right. these, these little, you know, basic, basic sermons like you find the world of the cults. So and, I did want to, yeah. Go ahead, Kelsey. I one more thing. I just wanted to just wanted to say one other thing, you know. And and all those people who have spent you know years and years getting degrees and and learning you know the biblical languages and you know st you know studying you know actually studying the text. None of them say that the bride is talking about God the Mother. No way. It's just the WMS who they don't know Greek. They don't know Hebrew. They, no. you know, they, they know Korean and they know a little bit of English. Like, <laughs> and so then how yeah. can you trust, how can you put your salvation in their interpretation versus people who have literally devoted their entire lives to, you know, to, to really digging into the, the text? And they'll quote us when it's convenient for them. That's it. Yeah. They won't agree with that. But if they can take one of our real scholars, an F.F. Bruce or Gleason Arch, someone, a heavyweight, they'll just quote them, oh, just to try to back your point out of context to try to, to, try to steal sheep. Well, they yep. also, they'll also say that the reason why people don't know, like even scholars don't know, is because she's supposed to be revealed in the last days. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're living in the last days and these scholars, they still don't <laughs> interpret this. Uh, the bride is God the mother. They're still saying, even in these last days... That you know, with her on this earth, and you know, they they've they're some of them are even aware of the WMSCOG. They're still saying that this is not the bride is not talking about God the Mother. A little off point, but a little off point, but relevant is I just yeah. love the introductory chapter in the Green Book where Anson Hong himself says everybody should read the Green Book. It shouldn't be a book; it's secret that nobody can get their hands on <laughs> yeah. until six weeks Very after the baptize. Yeah, until <laughs> right. six weeks after you're baptized and go to like all your meetings and tithe and preach. It doesn't say that at all. Van Tong Hong himself said, give this to all the professors and the other people, the pastors, right. theologians, let them get enlightened by this book. Really? You know, try, why don't you guys in the church start selling that book to us and let us do it? You guys aren't a bang father right there. You know, it's, it's, right. it's a laugh. But um, yep. I wanted to, I want to piggyback. I wanted to piggyback here on what both Jordan and Kelsey brought up about the way words can have the different meanings ideas. So we would say that the church here is both the bride and the guests. And uh, you know, a lot of writers and commentators, theologians would say uh, it's the church. You know, the church is the bride in a corporate sense, but the wedding guests are more of an individual sense, where we're called and invited on an individual sense. So that's there's that nuance between the two, but. 
you know, as far as the the meanings, like not pushing it too far and keeping metaphorical language and colorful language separate, you know, Jesus is both called the, the lamb and he's also called the shepherd in the Bible. So there's a like, you know, conflation and categories right there, you could say. Um, the sun-clothed woman in Revelation chapter 12, she's both the people of God and she also has, she's also the children, her children, the children of that sun-clothed figure in Revelation 12. And in this passage too, it's not a contradiction because of the way, you know, the language is used. Jesus is both the lamb and the bridegroom. Yep. And Jordan, so, you had a really good example about that too, explaining the corporate versus individual. Do you remember? Was that today? Remind no. me of, of <laughs> that example. Uh, I think it was a few days ago. You said, uh, I'll, I'll just read it. You said, um, the bride refers to the church corporately while the guest refers to the saints individually. And an analogy would be any corporate noun, such as a school, a team or a company, something like this Main Street School, for example, is having a banquet to honor its top scholars. The individual students are invited to attend. The students are both the school, which is the corporate level, and the scholars, which is individual level. In the same way, you know, there's the Israel is referred to as God's bride, betrothed wife and mother of God's children. Israelites are referred to as the children of their mother, Israel. Um, therefore, the Israelites are both bride, corporate, and children, individual of God. Yes, right. That wasn't my example, by the way. That's somebody else. But that is a very good example. And I, th I think that's that's really a good way of, of maybe explaining a little bit about how, how you can maybe understand um, what the purposes of, of these symbols are, of what, why is the bride uh, of why is the church the bride and, and here and the church is the guest here? And I think because, again, the symbolism is speaking to different aspects uh, of the, the church. And so um, I'm not I'm not saying this is 100 percent the way you have to see it. This is more just like sort of a, a helpful way that I think you could maybe understand. And maybe what I think the symbolism is trying to get at is that the bride speaks more to this corporate aspect of the whole collective body uh, of all the saints as one collective entity while the invited refers more to this aspect where every individual who makes up this body has a specific responsibility to respond to that invitation. And so there's, there's the aspect where the church is the, the invited because as, as somebody who's invited, you have to make a personal decision whether you're going to respond to that invitation. But then for those who do respond, there's the other symbol to where those who have responded become this collective entity, this corporate body that is defined as the church. And so I think that's maybe a helpful way that you can understand why these different symbols would be used. And then you could even, you know, there's more to that about why is the, the why are the saints then referred to as the armies of God? And and there's a specific reason for that 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 I haven't really thought out, so I'm not going to say why. But but I think that's that's what's going on here, which goes back to Steve's explanation of apocalyptic literature which just simply does this this is the way apocalyptic literature is it it uses all this highly symbolic uh uh language to to describe things and you um, can't just split it up and try to build a doctrine on it and and what i think is important to right. point out here tonight is that if you're a member in the church with doubts or if you're being taught by these guys and you're trying to figure this out you know they might try to present you these arguments and try to say you see you see 
we've got these guys here. There's no other explanation. Bride, the you know the the guests have to prove that there's a mother here. No, it doesn't. Yeah. There is an alternate explanation, and it's a yes, good explanation exactly. too. And a good explanation. So, so I would. So you don't I have would, to buy the, the the second deity nonsense based upon yes. this kind of apocalyptic imagery yep. that you can't push and split. The the entire basis, the, the, this entire argument is, is uh, that the WMSCOG is bringing. Uh, the World Mission Society Church of God that they are bringing in the staff of Moses. The argument is extremely simplistic, and this is it. The whole basis of this argument is that okay, you have you have guests and bride. Okay, well that can't be two people. That must that must mean the bride is Mother God, and the church are the guests. Like it's it's just it's that simple. There's no they don't go deeper than that. And so I would simply say, I think you could very simply say this in response without anything else that we've said so far. You could just say, there's no reason why the saints cannot be pictured in the same chapter, chapter 19, by both the bride and the guests, just as Jesus can be pictured in the same chapter as both a lamb and a groom and an, ar uh, an army leading rider on a white horse. So Jesus in the very same chapter, there's three different symbols put on him. He's a lamb, one, he's a groom, two, and he's, a, he's a, like a, a leader of armies yeah. riding on a white horse. Well, you could just as easily, if you follow the logic, the whole rationale of the WMSUG, you could just as easily look at those examples of Jesus and say, okay, there's, there's, three, there's three separate entities here like those can't be the same people a lamb is not going to be riding on a white horse leading army so okay who's the lamb the lamb's obviously not the rider on the white horse and lambs don't have wedding feasts so the lamb can't be the, the groom and so okay who's the groom and who's the lamb and who's the rider on the white horse like that argument that i just gave is exactly the same it has the same credentials the same credibility as the argument that the wmsc og is giving in this chapter i.e. no credibility. A, it's an empty point. argument. And, and you know, something point. else Something else that the cults often try to do, like when you try to say to a Mormon, hey, faith without works is, you know, they'll try to say actually, you know, we're saved by grace through faith. They 100% of the time are going to go, James chapter two, faith without works is dead. Well, right. you're trying to, you're misunderstanding James number one, but that doesn't make the words on Ephesians two go away. Well, the same way, even if you think you've got a little gotcha here with Revelation 199, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> if you, just because you have that kind of argument doesn't mean that it negates the gazillion verses throughout the Bible that says explicitly there is one God. It doesn't make those verses go off the page. Right. Yeah, you might try to say, well, we got a little argument here showing that the bride, so there's got to be a bride, it can't be the guy. Well, what about all the verses theologically explicitly say, you know, I'm the Lord, your God. I don't know of any other gods. Beside me, there's no God. <coughs> and these guys believe in two gods. You, you, yeah. It's not doing anything to to negate those other verses. And that's the it's, lie. You, it, let's go yeah. by the clear, explicit teaching of Scripture. Exactly. Central doctrine. The most important doctrine of the Bible, <coughs> excuse me, is who God is. It goes back to this principle that we've talked about in, in prior videos in the in this series about how I think import is so important in the Bible to 
as to interpret the more confusing, unclear passages by the clear passages. You you find, I think, there's things that are up for debate. There's things that, that Christians would disagree about. There's things that I would sit here probably and, and have differing views with many other uh, uh, Bible-believing Christians. But there are certain things that I think are just very clear. And one of those would be this, this aspect of there's one God. Uh, and, and so you when you run into especially apocalyptic literature, places where there's obvious highly symbolic language going on here, you don't take that that sort of language and see those passages, the unclear ones, and then start to rework and, and, and re-understand the clear principles that have already been laid down before. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's what's going on here. The WMSCOG is, is basing this whole argument of Mother God on very sandy foundations. It, it's just, it's just a, yeah, not not a very solid place to base uh, these these doctrinal stances on to to base that on passages like this that are highly it's such symbolic an important and open to interpretation. Salvation issue as this, you right. don't want to get wrong. I mean, they're teaching, right, Kelsey? That you got to, you know, if you don't believe in mother, you're lost eternally. And and right. they would say that. You know, you have to get this one right. I mean, this is such an important salvation issue. You've got to go to the explicit teachings where God has clearly said how many gods there is. Um, one, one other point um, is kind of interesting, Kelsey and I talked about, is how the WSUG states that the believers are ornaments on mother's wedding gown uh, over there. Uh, Kelsey, do you want to comment on that? Well, yeah, I mean, they, 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 because they say the bride is the, they say the bride is God the mother. So, like it says in verse 8, it says, Fine linen, bride and queen was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So, our good deeds are, you know, ornaments on, on Heavenly Mother. They reflect on Heavenly Mother. Um, because, you know, Heavenly Mother is the Jerusalem temple, right? And that when we're, one of the good deeds is is preaching the gospel. So when we preach, we bring materials to the spiritual temple, this Jerusalem temple, which is Heavenly Mother. So, but the, I mean, butch- mm-hmm. the butchering of the verse is so clear, though, because, you know, Kelsey, read verse 8 out loud, because the whole point is this. It says that if we're ornaments on Mother's wedding gown, it's not what it says. It says our good deeds are actually the linen itself, not ornaments right. on the linen, which actually... And that's t- completely twisting the text. What is what is the what is the uh, what does it say? The good good works are it's the actual linen, nothing to do with something on top of the linen, and that's where they're completely twisting the verse there. Yep. So it is a a clear, I think, idea, biblical idea that that the saints, that the people of God, both Old and New Testament, are referred to as the the bride. That that there's this consistent theme that it is. It is the people of God who will be married to God. Um, that that's the story of the Bible being told. Old Testament uh, and symbol. new, old, old and new. Literally throughout the Bible, they like to say mother is testified throughout the Bible, but it literally says throughout the Bible, right? That the, in a, in a way that people the, who just pick up the right. Bible, apart from having to have this yeah, exactly. this indoctrination, could understand for themselves. Right. You know, you could pick up the book of Hosea and under if you don't understand anything Absolutely. else, you could understand this God is speaking about His people in terms of being married to them. It's just it's it's in your face. And so I'd say too, there's also, it's, it's probably not quite as consistent, but there is this theme also of, of the church being 
the the invited or the guests. Like there's there's multiple parables where got the people are, are referred to as those who are called or invited to this banquet. And so I think I think it's completely fair, it's completely reasonable, it, it's and it's and it's completely biblical if you want to use that terminology to look at this this these symbols of both bride and guests and to look at the rest of scripture, take take these symbols in light of the rest of scripture. And I think it's very reasonable, very rational to come to the conclusion that we're coming to, to say, okay, these are just two symbols, both referring to the saints, because these two symbols are used over and over throughout scripture to refer to the saints in the rest of the Bible. And so it's reasonable to say when you get to Revelation and you see them referred to a these symbols uh, used again of bride and guest. Um, it makes sense to say, okay, this is this is again, this is the saints. There's no reason to to assume that, uh, especially Steve, as you said, that we don't need to get, to get into a whole lot more. But but to to go from these two different entities to then saying, okay, there must be a, a, a second deity, uh, a, a mother god. Like that's just a wild. Unrational. Leap. Un, it's a big un, leap. Un, yeah, leap. That that and, it and has no solid basis to do so. Yeah. So they don't interpret the Bible right. They take metaphors and apocalyptic imagery and they try to build doctrines on that, which is a giant mistake. You know, there's there's alternate explanations. It doesn't have to be the way they say. And um, you know, they're ignoring explicit the body of scripture, which clearly says there's one God. As I said earlier, wait till we get to chapter five. Uh, you know, there'll be no doubt for the honest person after chapter five, we're done on how many gods there is. And this is salvation central, you know. You know, you're yep. a polytheist if you're a member of the church of God. Christians and Jews are monotheists. If you're part of this church, you're a polytheist. So a polytheist is someone who believes in more than one God. You know, you don't even have to worship them. You just have to acknowledge them. But these people do worship them. So absolute polytheists. So let's let's move on. I'm going to read another quote from uh, this is from part one uh, of uh, it's from what they have titled in the staff of Moses. They have it titled uh, main subject number one. Um, and the heading is if the bride refers to the saints who are the invited. Um, so they say those who are invited to the wedding banquet can never be the bridegroom or the bride because the bridegroom and the bride are not invited to their wedding, but the ones who invite guests. So the bride and the guests are completely uh, different. So here's something that's super interesting. And this, this is something I think we touched on in past videos, but, but turn back to chapter six real quick. Because, or, or I'm sorry, not chapter six, page six in the Staff of Moses. So um, I, I'm going to read this section on page six and just see if you guys pick up on this. Because this seems hugely significant to me. Another place where the World uh, Mission Society Church of God is being pretty hypocritical, it seems like, in chapter three. So again, this is page six of the Staff of Moses um, under the heading, Secondly, Adam and Eve represent the Spirit and the Bride. So here's what they say. Adam and Eve were created just before God's resting from creation and were given authority to rule over all the animals. They represent the Spirit and the Bride who appeared just before entering the eternal rest in order to lead the saints represented as the animals to heaven. Okay, again, see if you guys pick up on this. In other words, the saints who will be saved are represented as the animals and the spirit and the bride. 
the Savior who will lead them to heaven are represented by Adam and Eve. This teaches us that Eve represents the Heavenly Mother, our Savior. Um, and so I think it's earlier, yes, if you jump up, they quote Ong Song Hong, who says that Eve represents the saints. Uh, there's a quote from Ong Song Hong from visitors from the angelic world, where they're, they're agreeing with Ong Song Hong's teaching that Eve represents the saints. Okay, follow with me here. And then in the section I just read, they say, the animals represent the saints. Okay, so he, here's what they're doing. They're doing exactly what we have just done. The way we're looking at this 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 one example oh, in Revelation. Oh, man, that's so good. In, in Revelation, we're looking at, you have both guests and you have bride. You have these two entities. And we're saying they're both representing the same thing, the saints. The WMSCOG's whole argument in chapter three is they're saying, no, you can't do that. Like, you can't do that because they're two, they're separate. But if you right. look at what they just did, if you turn back a couple pages on page six, they say that the, the saints are represented in the same analogy in Genesis by both Eve and the animals. The saints are and both the animals be? and Eve. And you could use, so you could use their same argument and say, oh, wow. um, if you look at this quote I just read from chapter three, where they say, uh, those who are invited to the wedding banquet can never be the bridegroom or the bride because the bridegroom and the bride are not invited to their wedding. Well, you could just as easily say something like, uh, uh, the saints could, could never be both Eve and the animals because, because Eve is the one who takes care of the animals, not the animals themselves. You know, they're two separate things. So how could they be the same thing? Right. And so it's just like they, they have made a case for us already that, that it's okay to look at this, this one, uh, one setting, one story, one, one place where you have these two different entities, bride and guest, and to say that this, both of them are symbolic of the same uh, group, the church. So that's what we're doing. And we're using the WMSCOG's own, own book to show that uh, they say it's okay to do that. And so why not interpret it the way we are Mm -hmm. If if the WMSCOG is, it does that in Genesis, so does you know, that make sense? Yeah, I've studied yeah, so point. many different. I've studied so many different cults, and I'll tell you, these guys are so awful at interpreting the Bible. An Sung Hong was awful. When you read his books, like the Green Book, the the mistakes he makes, the equivocations he makes, is just unbelievably bad. And um, it's like a one on one on how not to interpret scripture. Scripture twisting one on one. So, you know, another example, I just have a few more points on that that, that um, I wanted to say. So if you look at verse 10, again, there, I think that the argument in chapter 3 falls apart. If you just, if you just take chapter 19 and look at it, um, if, not from a subjective place of, of looking at it through the lens of the WMSCOG, but you just look at, listen to what they're saying and then analyze Revelation 19 and, and compare it and see if it fits and their argument falls apart in so many different ways as, of, as we've already showed. But here's another way it falls apart. Look at verse 10. Um, after this whole uh, passage about the bride, you know, the bride and the marriage of the lamb has come, the bride has made herself ready. It says in verse 10 that John says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. Okay, so think about this. Now, now the church, 
John included, is being referred to as servants of God. So, so I know maybe this isn't as strong as some of the things we said before, well, but I think it's an interesting point. point. It's like, and you could just as easily make the point, well, servants aren't invited to weddings. The servants are the ones serving those guests who haven't been invited. The servants of the, of the bridegroom or the king are the ones who are serving the guests. They're serving the food. They didn't <laughs> get the invitation. They're, they're hired to, to do what they're doing. And so, yeah, if, so if the church is being referred to as servants, how could they be re- also the guests? Right. <laughs> so what you're, what you're doing right now is called reductio ad absurdum. So you're basically pushing the argument to its logical conclusion to show how exactly. bogus it is. And exactly. you're saying, well, you know, you can, if you can have this, if you're going to say this is like this and this is like this, well, what about the servants? You can't keep pushing it. It's metaphorical, right. symbolic language. You know, exactly. again, explicitly contradicted by a ton of verses that says there's not two gods. <laughs>